Good morning. What a treat to be here with you. I love coming back home to Texas. You say home. Well, I was born in Richardson, not far from here, even though I grew up in California. But for some reason, as I travel, I just always know when I'm in Texas. And I'm guessing you do too. You ever travel and you kind of wake up and you remember, okay, where am I at? Don't have coffee yet? Trying to figure things out. Well, I always know when I'm in Texas because I go down to get breakfast. And at the breakfast place, it's only in Texas that the waffle machine is shaped like the state. (laughs) Honestly, I've never seen another state that does this. They don't do this in like Vermont, right? Because your waffle would be like bite size. (laughs) What is a treat to be here this morning with you, especially because the focus is on the next generation. The reality is, and you know this, that we have a generation of young people right now, some call it the selfie generation, post-millennials, Gen Z, who have more challenges intellectually, morally, spiritually, relationally, than I think any generation in history because of the smartphone. We cannot keep relating to this generation and expect them to stand firm in the faith the way we have other generations. So to learn about a church that cares about and commissions and focuses on the next generation doesn't get any better than that to me. Well, as we talk about this morning, I do want to ask you a question that's relevant for all of us, but in some ways in particular this generation, and it's this. Have you ever been tempted to quit something important to you? By important, I mean maybe a relationship or a marriage, maybe a ministry, Maybe a degree, maybe your faith. Maybe you got to the point where the cost of something started to outweigh the benefits of it. You thought about walking away. Well, Paul experienced this, and he writes about it in the book of Philippians. Now, what was Paul talking about? He's writing, keep in mind, from prison, probably in Rome encouraging the church in Philippi to stand firm in their faith. Don't quit. Don't give up. Let me encourage you to stand firm. So we're going to look at that this morning in Philippians chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me. If you can't find it, it's right after Philippians chapter 2. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Philippians. I'm going to read a longer section than is probably typically read in church, maybe 13, 14 verses. So in our distracted age, choose to focus with me because everything he says is germane to what we're looking at together this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. This is in the CSB. Paul writes, Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, here's the key verse, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. Verse 16, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I've often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross 
of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Last verse is this, 4.1. So then my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So here's Paul in a, in a prison in Philippi, which didn't remotely have cable TV or air conditioning or any kind of health care or good food, shouldn't he be the one being written a letter about standing firm? <laughs> Instead, he's writing the church in Philippi, saying you're going to be tempted to walk away. You're going to be tempted to give up your faith. You're going to be tempted to stop running the race of faith. Stand firm. So as I read this passage and reflect upon this, it seems to me there's a number of reasons in particular that people will stop standing firm in the faith. Now, rarely does somebody just wake up and say, you know what, today I'm going to stop being a Christian. What happens is we make choices. We start to adopt certain beliefs. We build certain relationships. And then over time, people just stop standing firm in the faith. What would Paul say? I forget what lies behind, but I aim forward to what lies ahead. I think the biggest reason, perhaps, people stop running the race of faith and standing firm is because of suffering and evil. I'm convinced in my life and my experience that if anything causes people to stop saying, God, maybe you don't exist, or God, maybe you're not good, it's suffering and evil. Have you ever gotten a text or a call or looked at like maybe a Twitter update and you see something and you just stop and it kind of takes your breath away? I got a text from a friend of mine a, about a mutual friend of ours who, by the way, grew up, who was an evangelist, wrote some books. His father was an evangelist. He said, hey, did you know that our mutual friend has left the faith and become an atheist? I read this and I paused and I thought, no. This can't be. And like Paul describes, with tears in my eyes, I thought, no, he was once standing firm, encouraging people to stand firm. He's left the faith. Why? Well, in his life, there were a number of issues. But you know what it honestly boiled down to? He was working in the inner city. And there's a lady who came to him whose nine-year-old daughter had been raped. And he said, I cannot believe that God is good enough to care, powerful enough to stop it, and to not do anything. I'm not as powerful as God. I certainly don't claim to be as good. I would have stopped it, but God doesn't. See, at some point in our life, if we see evil or we suffer, you know what we're tempted to ask or think? We're tempted to think, I know better than God. And if we allow that thought to take seed in our heart, it's going to shipwreck our faith. There's a big difference between saying, God, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. I'm angry. I'm in despair, but I trust you. And God, you know what? Maybe you don't know what you're doing. I know better. Do you see the difference in that? See, ironically, 
Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, telling them, don't bail on the faith even in suffering when Paul is the one who is suffering. So when I read this, I was like, why didn't Paul quit running the race of faith if this is what suffering and evil does? If anybody had an excuse, it's Paul. You've probably read the passage of 2 Corinthians where Paul says, I was shipwrecked, I was beaten, I was hungry, I was robbed, I was stoned multiple times. And I know you know this, that it has nothing to do with pot. I have to clarify that in my great state of California now. Why is it that Paul suffered and he didn't walk away from his faith? Because you know what I think when we suffer and what evil does? You kind of can't stand on the sidelines, can you? And I have people in my life, like many of you, suffering greatly. And essentially, people either say, God, I need your mercy and your strength, and I trust you. Or like Job's wife says, why don't you curse God and die? Suffering clarifies, doesn't it? So why didn't Paul quit running the race of faith? You know what I think it is? Because Paul knew exactly what he signed up for. Paul didn't sign up for the Christian faith so he could be married with a nice home, a secure job, a great 403B, and 2.5 kids in a white picket fence. Paul didn't sign up for that. When Paul signed up, he was actually told, we read in Acts chapter 9, It says, for I will show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. Paul didn't quit standing firm in the faith when he suffered because he understood that Christianity doesn't promise we won't suffer. It promises God is with us and he will redeem our suffering. A radio show host I enjoy listening to is uh, Jewish talk show host Dennis Prager. So insightful, wise, smart. I'm sure many of you listen to him. He wrote a book a few years ago called Happiness is a Serious Problem. And it's it's a really interesting book, contrasting like a secular view of happiness with a broader biblical view of happiness. I agree with a lot of his insights, but he started having a lot of people on his show and he noticed a trend that couples who are committed in a relationship, if they experience the sudden loss of a child, a majority of them would either be separated or divorced. So he wanted to figure out, understandably, why is it that some couples who experience this tragedy stay together and some couples don't? You know what he concluded in his research he cites in that book? He says one of the differences was is that couples who experience a sudden loss of a child, but they had a philosophy of life that could make sense of this, were able to stay together and still grieve and still mourn but it didn't tear their relationship apart. That's the power of a worldview. That's the power of a belief system. Paul had a belief system about suffering. God is sovereign, God is good, I'm going to suffer in this life. So when pain and evil came, he wasn't surprised and he didn't walk away. Friends, Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Your cross is not the person you work with who emails you too often or your loud neighbor who listens to rock music. He meant pick up your cross and be ready to die. Paul embraced that, but it didn't end there. You know why he didn't jettison his faith to suffering evil? Not only because he embraced suffering, because Paul believed Jesus had risen from the grave. 
I mean, if you and I really believe what we celebrated just a few weeks ago about Easter, that Jesus conquered death, wouldn't that transform how we face suffering? Transform it. Paul knew you could beat my body, but Jesus has already conquered the grave. I'm already on the winning side of history. That's how he writes in Philippians 3.10, right before this passage, he says that I may live in the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's chapter on the meaning of the resurrection, he ends by saying what? Oh, victory, where's your death? Victory, where's your sting? All of us see evil. All of us experience suffering. But Paul was able to withstand it because he understood we live in a broken world and he knew that Jesus had already conquered it. The second reason I think people quit running the race of faith that Paul hints at in this passage of Philippians 3 are questions and doubts. And I know Pastor Craig spoke on this just a few weeks ago. But you realize what's interesting is studies of Gen Z show that this generation has a lot of questions and doubts about the intersection of science and faith, about how Jesus can be the only way, about the LGBTQ Christian position on this. This question generation has a lot of doubts. But it's not doubts that cause somebody to quit standing firm in the faith. You realize that, right? You know what it is? It's unexpressed doubts. It's when someone starts to question, gosh, is the Bible really reliable or authoritative? Guys, Jesus really God. And they don't express him and they bury him down. It becomes like a cancer and starts to eat away at somebody's faith and eventually they walk away. See, I grew up in a Christian home Some of you might recognize the name of my father, Josh McDowell. Pastor Craig shared a story about him, I believe, a couple Sundays ago, and now the book Evidence was formative and powerful for him. I grew up with parents who've been on crusade for like five plus decades. And my dad's story was setting out trying to disprove Christianity. Years ago, being amazed by the evidence and then becoming a Christian and forgiving his father who's an alcoholic. His sister committed suicide. My dad was sexually abused, like a dramatic story of God's transformation in his life. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, quite obviously, but at some point in my life, I decided, probably like many of you, like, I'm not gonna live this Christian life. I'm not gonna follow what God wants me to do. In fact, forget God, I'm doing it my way. You know what happens when you live this way, right? I was at the end of my rope. And so when I was four years old, I got down on my knees. I only feel marginally bad setting you up like that. Because growing up in the church, I would hear these dramatic stories and always think, gosh, if God's gonna use me, I gotta come out of prison or I've gotta be in a gang or something. Like, for some reason, I embrace that. I don't have this amazing story like that. Although when I was 19 years old, I actually told my dad, 19 years old, I said, dad, I wanna know the truth, but I'm not sure I really believe Christianity is true. What would you say if your kids or your grandkids said that to you? Well, my dad's this great apologist, not saying I'm sorry, but defending the Christian faith. And his son's like, yeah, I'm not sure I buy that. We're in Breckenridge, Colorado. I told him that over, over coffee and I said it to him. Instantly he goes, son, I think that's great. I said, dad, did you actually hear what I said? He goes, you can't live on my convictions. You gotta decide for yourself if you think this is true. Go, I've taught you to follow truth no matter the cost. Wherever you land up, you know your mother and I love you no matter what. And you know what? As I look back, yes, I had to find answers that made sense to me. 
but also just being able to express that doubt is huge for this generation. And what's amazing, you can say you struggle with almost any sin in the church, almost any sin. There's some pet sins that we have, but doubt, if you say, gosh, I just doubt, people freak out, right? <gasps> what's the matter with you? Friends, if there's any religion that's okay with doubt, it's Christianity. Do you know why? Are you ready? It's because Christianity is actually true. It's actually true. And we have good reason to believe that it's true. That's why in Mark 12, Jesus says, love God with your heart and with your soul and with your strength and with your Okay, this is the participatory part of the program. <laughs> Love God with your what? With your mind. Think about it. Ideas matter. In Isaiah 118, what does God say? Come let us reason together. John 20, at the end of the gospel, 30 through 31, what does the author of, of John say? He says, these have been written so you may believe, and by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, the miracles and teachings of Jesus were recorded so you could have a confident, intelligent, trustworthy faith, not blind, a reasonable faith. You know, when John the Baptist was in prison, he starts to have doubts. Why did he start to have doubts in prison? You know why? Because our environment, when we suffer, sometimes causes us to doubt. What does Jesus say when John sends one of his disciples to him? Does he say, tell John, doubt is a sin, shame on him, get it together and be tough. Jesus doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, go remind John of something he already knows. That the deaf hear, that the blind see, that the poor are being given to and that the good news is being preached. He reminds him of the truth that he knows to help him with his doubt. He reminds him of the truth that he knows to help him with his doubt. Friends, what would Paul say? He'd say again, forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Suffering evil distracts people. Doubt causes people to stop standing firm. What's the third reason? I think the third reason is the increasing cultural cost for following Jesus. Now, our culture never was a Christian nation. That's an oxymoron in a sense anyways. But broadly speaking, it was popular to at least claim to be a Christian. And you wanted the Christian worldview on your side, whether people really lived it or not. Right? Broadly speaking, if somebody says, hey, I'm, I'm an American, that means you like apple pie, you like baseball, and you call yourself a Christian. According to David Kinnaman, President Barna Research Group, and Gabe Lyons in their book, Good Faith, you know what they say? They say, in our culture, increasingly, Christianity, and they use two words, is considered irrelevant and extreme. Now let that sink in. Our Christian faith is considered irrelevant and extreme. So here's two things you and I should be committed to as Christians that are increasingly considered extreme. Number one, to believe you should share your faith with somebody is now extremist. Why? Because if you share your faith, you're saying somebody else is wrong about their deepest spiritual convictions. That's judgmental, that's intolerant, that's not inclusive. 
That's extreme. You know what else is extreme? Believing that marriage is one man and one woman in a committed relationship for life. That's considered extremist. We live in a crazy world, don't we? I'm on Twitter. I, I like Twitter to vent my anger. No, I'm just kidding. Although it's very tempting to do so on Twitter. I enjoy Twitter for a number of reasons, and I, I tweeted out a quote by John Wooden that I came across. John Wooden, great basketball coach, Christian man at UCLA, I don't know, 10 or 11 championships in a few years, phenomenal, the college level. Some would say one of the greatest coaches of all time. I was reading one of his books on wisdom, and he said something that stuck with me because it's a similar thing my dad had often said to me. He said to me, and Wooden said, the greatest way a man can show love to his kids is to love his kid's mother. That's really interesting. So I tweeted it out and quoted John Wooden. And somebody tweeted back and said, okay, wait a minute, time out. Are you actually saying kids need a mom and a dad? And I said, well, first off, it's not me. It's John Wooden. Take it up with him, right? <laughs> Deflect when you can. And second, I said, yeah, I think John Wooden is right about this. He writes back and goes, how arbitrary to say kids need a mom and a dad. Now, honestly, let that sink in. It's arbitrary, increasingly in the minds of many in this generation, to think that kids need a mom and a dad. So what happens is the narrative is that it's the Christian worldview, in particular teaching on marriage and sexuality, that is harmful and causes bigotry to people who see the world differently. That's the narrative. So there's a teacher in Virginia, maybe you followed this story, who was fired from his position because he would not use the preferred gender pronoun for a student. Fired. A florist in Washington who said, I'll serve people of all lifestyles, all beliefs, I'll make flowers for them. When it comes to same-sex wedding, this would be me celebrating it. This is like the sweetest grandma you've ever met, by the way. She goes, I can't do it. Find them and sued for essentially everything that she has. I think what's happening is, and I'm not going to use the term persecution because that does injustice to our friends around the world who really cost in their life, but the temperature is being turned up a little bit. And there is a cultural cost. Now, my great state of California is probably a few steps ahead of you here in Texas. But this is where things are going. And Christians are like, this costs too much, I'm out. I think the fourth reason, and this might be the biggest one, I don't know exactly how to gauge this, is sin. Why would somebody stop standing firm in the faith that sin? What did Paul write in Philippians 3? He said, their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. Now, I know for sure that there's some of you sitting here right now who are flirting with serious sin. That if you don't stop and repent, it'll wreck your reputation, wreck your relationships, and maybe even shipwreck your faith. You say, how do you know this? Are you a prophet? No, I'm not a prophet. In fact, I work at Biola University, a nonprofit organization. I only know this because numerically, and I know human nature, it's sin. I was at a conference that I love with the next, when I care about the next generation, there's a ministry called Summit Ministries for kids 16 to 25 years old. 12 days of in-depth worldview training to think Christianly about life. 
game-changing experience for students. And I speak there every chance I get. I was speaking for them. And a student came up to me after I did kind of this atheist encounter role play that I do. And he goes, that was really interesting. Can we talk? I said, well, there's another session. I think you should go. He goes, look, I'm an atheist. I said, really? And you want to talk? Sure, let's go talk. So we went and sat on couches out in front of where this conference is in Manitou Springs, right outside of Colorado Springs. We're sitting there talking. The student, I believe, was 18 years old, just graduated from high school. And he goes, you know what? I grew up in the faith, but I don't believe anymore. I said, why not? And he started giving me these tough questions. I did my best to answer them. But then it kind of struck me like these far out there apologetic questions. And I'm thinking, I just don't know if this is really his hang up. I think there's something deeper. So I asked him, I said, look, I'm happy to try to answer these questions as long as I can, but I'm sensing something else is going on with you. What is it? He goes, you're right. It's not really about these questions. He said, I graduated from high school. I've signed up to go to university in the fall and I've already signed up for a fraternity. I just want to have fun for a season in my life. I said, okay, thanks for your honesty. Now we're talking. This is a very different conversation, isn't it? In other words, he thought Christianity was about stealing his fun and that he'd only be free if he walked away from his faith and experienced the world. I said, you know what? If you go down this road, God will always love you and have grace for you. Never forget that. But you also get to live with the choices that you make. Never forget that either. (laughs) Sin looks fun. It looks freeing. Or we wouldn't do it. This might be the biggest one in particular for this generation that has more temptations just one click away. Sin shipwrecks faith. Like Paul said, their God becomes their belly. Their God becomes their belly. Paul would say, forget what lies behind. Forget that sin, repent, and move forward. The fifth reason, in some ways, people quit staying strong in the faith, I think, is discouragement. Sometimes you and I may wake up and go, you know what, my marriage is not the way I expected, my family, my faith, I just don't, feel satisfied. Maybe this isn't true and walk away. One of my loves growing up was basketball and my passion was to play college basketball. I played at Biola University and after my sophomore year, we weren't winning games. I wasn't playing a lot. I wasn't having a ton of fun. So I went into my coach and I said, coach, thanks for having me on the team. I think I'm done. It was actually the beginning of my junior year before the season started. He goes, I understand if you want to come back, you can play. Like, I get it. I was like, okay. Walking out, the assistant coach, Matt Misek, stopped me. He goes, hey, I heard that. Can I have just five minutes of your time? And inside, I'm like, he's going to give me the speech, but sure. So he gives me the speech. He goes, you're getting better. Don't quit. The team needs you, blah, blah, blah. I walk out. I'm like, ah, this is harder than I thought. Long story short, I ended up deciding to play. Junior year, we were 20 and 6. Senior year, 30 and 7. I got to be the captain, and I thought, thank God that I played. Now, I was about to give up because I was just discouraged. We all hit a point in life, maybe it's just something we love like a sport or something much more important like a marriage or our faith and we think things just aren't going as I thought. I'm done. And we walk away. Now there may be a time to walk away from a sport. There may be a time to walk away from a career or a certain ministry. 
But is there ever a time to walk away from a marriage? Very few. Is there ever a time to walk away from your faith? From your faith. I think discouragement, what would Paul say? Forget what lies behind and focus on what lies ahead. Friends, Paul's writing from a prison and he had reason to be discouraged in his faith. Here's my encouragement to you this morning in a sense to sum up. If you are suffering or experiencing evil, cling to the cross and the hope of the resurrection. God has not abandoned you. He is with you through this. If you have doubts, express them and find answers. Friends, if there's a cultural cost, lock arms with those around you and remind each other why you entered the faith in the first place. If there is sin, repent. And fifth, if you're discouraged, cry out to God and find somebody who can encourage you. You might be sitting here this morning going, you know what, hey, great talk, but I'm not thinking about abandoning my faith and standing firm, but you know what? Every single one of you in here knows somebody who is. And you realize you could be a game-changing person in this person's faith. It's not powerful to think about. So my question would be is, would you prayerfully reflect for a moment who in your life, maybe they're suffering, maybe you don't even know, say, God, bring somebody to my attention. Bring somebody to my attention that I could pray for, that I could go out of my way to write a letter for, take to coffee, to encourage in their faith to stand strong. Friends, God can use you and he can use me, especially with this next generation, to encourage them to stand firm in the faith. We need each other to live out our faith today. Amen? Friends, the book of evidence that I mentioned, we sold out in the first session. So, should have got up earlier. But second, we have this thing called Amazon that'll deliver it to you by two o'clock on a, on a drone if you really want it. So you can find it there, but we do have a book in the back, one that I wrote called, So the Next Generation Will Know just came out Wednesday, so I'm kind of pumped. This is the first church service I've been able to have back there. And basically, it's for anybody who cares about the next generation, parents, teachers, mentors, grandparents. What are practical strategies for helping the next generation stand firm in their faith? That's back there, and the best part is it's a short, easy book to read. Can I get an amen? Thanks for being here. Thanks for letting me be here, but more importantly, for caring enough about the next generation to commission them today. That's why I came hearing about this passion.